Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very first episode of Marketplace Mayhem with Shauna Kazi. Shauna is the founder and CEO of Weekdays, the leading micro schools marketplace with the largest network of teachers who meet 68 students in small learning programs, usually in a neighborhood home or a small classroom. But what did Shauna do before Weekdays? Before that, Shauna won Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award and was honored as Digital Media Leader of the Year by PR News. Shauna has a long history of being an executive advisor partner at big brands like Nordstrom, Comcast, and Google. But then after that, she decided to dive into the startup world at Decide and Startup Weekend. Going back to weekdays, Shauna's done something pretty impressive. Over the course of 18 months, that's during COVID, Weekdays has grown to over 2,000 teachers in multiple major markets like Seattle, Denver, LA, and San Francisco, while developing programs across the rest of the United States. Pretty impressive, huh, Ty? Yeah, I've been a huge fan of Shauna's for many years. You know, I really got to know what she does when she was the president of the local chapter of Social Media Club. And and of course, this was the time when, you know, big brands were not understanding social media yet. So it was before it was cool. She was adding credibility and legitimacy to using social media marketing and other digital marketing things. So definitely, I'm a fan of hers and definitely someone I've been learning from for a long time. Yeah, this is my first time meeting Shauna, but I thought the conversation was really fun. I learned a lot from her about the childcare desert. And honestly, it's pretty rad that she's has a thriving marketplace that is doing really well during COVID. I, I think a few people can see that, you know? Totally agree. So yeah, stay tuned to learn more about childcare deserts, accelerating growth during a pandemic, and even quality over quantity in a marketplace and how to think of some things around that nature. I would say this episode is particularly valuable to those that want to learn from an experienced digital marketer, leader in her community, but is also launching a marketplace in a new innovative space, really taking on a big, archaic, old system with something really cool and new. So please stay tuned. And if you enjoy this, you know, you can like and subscribe and do all of those things. What we really want to do is hear from you. So leave us a review. Tell us your thoughts. What did you learn? What do you want more of? Uh, those types of things. We prefer to hear from you at the end of this. But we say, please enjoy. Hear, hear. Please enjoy. Thanks. Shauna, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd begin with a little something about learning, a question around learning. What, what, Shauna, what have you learned recently? Or maybe to buy you a little bit of time, 
What are you working on becoming better at? Well, I have to be very transparent. I think as a founder, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses really come to light. And so I have, I've really been kind of learning a lot about, or I guess I should say a little bit about a lot of different areas as a founder. And I think when you do that, you realize real quickly, you're reminded real, really quickly what you're good at and what you are not good at, you know, and what things are, are hurdles for you. And so I think, you know, to be, to be really open, I'm sort of learning a lot more about what my weaknesses are, what my areas are that I'm not good at and learning, which, you know, I didn't know I needed to learn this, but learning that I either need to get better at them or I need to ask for help. And that's, I think, as a founder, one of the toughest things is confronting that because, you you know, I think oftentimes we're just drawn to the things that we're good at. And that's what we focus on. And, and you can't really do that when you're an early, early stage startup. What do you find yourself asking for help for lately? I'm not always the best at the fine, fine, fine print. I've been forcing myself to do that. But I'm more of a strategy person. And I like to support other team members and like, be, you know, kind of be their biggest fan. And so... I think, you know, in the, in the earliest days, you know, we didn't have a big team. And so it was like, I'm, you know, putting the things off that I focus on during the day, I'm up at night doing those things. And so now I'm trying mm. to ask for more help because I've really partnered with people who are completely different than me, you know, as far as nice. their skill sets. And so making sure that I, I ask them for help or really more make sure that the responsibility is theirs and that they can jump in and own different pieces, which, you know, there's that give and take in the beginning, you're doing everything and then you have yeah. to learn to pass it off. And so that's, Share your Legos. Um, you know, I think we don't talk about how hard it is to be a founder as much as we should. You know, you're supposed to always just say you're killing it and everything's going great. Right. But actually, it's <laughs> like you're up at 2 a.m. making sure that like the payroll system's working, you know, right, something right. happens or. <laughs> and all the different skill sets, like you said, you've got to learn a lot of different things. I don't think, you know, it, it has, I think it's been talked about a bit, a bit, but it's hard to really draw that picture of like, you've got to be good at so many, not even good at, you just got to <laughs> do so many different things, whether you're good at them or not. Right. So, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Or no, at least know when, when to ask the questions, because there might be something there that, you know, if we don't know enough about, we could, you know, we could go in a wrong direction or, you know, even like a little thing like taxes, you know, learning mm. about like, like those types of things that honestly are not fun for, I'm not, that's, you know, it's not fun for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As a founder at the start, you have to be, yeah, you have to be a MacGyver of business development, marketing and operations, right? Like in that business development is like creating new business, whatever the, the business model is. I think that could be really hard. And then maybe it's also be analytical. And you mentioned the the finance and accounting stuff too. It's like, man, you really, yeah, you, you got to work lots of areas of your brain. Your brain's probably pretty strong right now. <laughs> I, I feel better already. <laughs> nice. um, I will say it, it always often makes me think about, you know, how there's those four quadrants for all of us. And there's one quadrant of the things that that you don't yet know about yourself. And so I think it's just a lifelong discovery journey of learning more about those things that you don't you don't yet know about yourself. Yeah. My therapist calls it learning your shadow. <laughs> He's like, you're learning your it. shadow. You know, when you I get those insights and I'm just like, yeah, it's like the blind spot while you're driving. It's really hard to see that yeah. stuff, but you can bring light to it. What have you learned about learning, maybe specifically around early childhood development? Oh, so many things. You know, the one thing that that I love about this industry is I get a chance to work with and support the most creative people on earth. And that's children, you know? I mean, 
really like they're direct. They tell you what they're oftentimes they will tell you what they're thinking. They come up with, you know, all kinds of ideas. I mean, I, I think about some of the best pitch competitions I've heard of have been younger kids, which is nice. kind of interesting. Even high, you know, high schoolers, I've heard some great pitch competitions from high schoolers too. So that's the thing that I think is, is such a good reminder. I mean, we do lose that as adults. And I think there's so many times that like, Sometimes I feel more, a little bit like the student when I get to hang out or I'm covering, you know, jumping into a classroom or observing because I get to remember that, like, look at all the thousand ways we could solve this problem. And oftentimes as adults, you think about three, you know, or you think about gravity holding you down, you know, and you know, what, if you, what if that didn't exist or what if there's a different way? The other thing that I think is interesting is our, I guess the second thing I'll mention is our model is micro classes. So smaller group learning. And I've really dug into a lot of the research behind how children learn. And one of the things that, you know, I didn't know the research when, you know, all of the research when I started weekdays, but what I did see with my son's very first school is that he was in a big classroom of 20 plus kids. And he was just a number and oftentimes is wrangling the children. And, and that creates a, an environment where you're really stifling that creativity and that passion because you're, they're just being told what to do all day. And so we thought that what if you could learn in a micro class environment and each child could really be encouraged with what their passions are and their interests are. And that's how children learn is focusing on what they're interested in. And so that's been a big focus area of mine. There's actually a study from, from 1984 called Bloom to Sigma. And it really looked at what happens when you have smaller group or even tutoring environments. And the fact that like kids do, you know, in the study did 98% better than the rest of their class when they were able to learn at their own pace and um, more self-directed learning. So I think it's really interesting to just kind of look at those types of things. And when you, when you do, it's obvious, you know, it's kind of like, of course, who wants to be told what to do all day long and in a standardized environment where you have a limited amount of time and you're either told if you're good or you're not good. So that's kind of, you know, I, I just get really, I get really into the research. But nice. by the way, it's also how adults learn. So this is not just kids. I mean, you also can think about this. So many of these things apply to adults as well. And how are micro classes different or similar to charter schools? Because charter schools was a thing about maybe like 10 years ago. At least it was in the zeitgeist of, it seemed like 2012. Yeah. You know, charter schools, I think, I think of elementary age and we're really focused on early, you know, early childhood education at this, um, with our model. And we're also focused on switching up the environment. So these are neighborhood programs. They're not okay. big standardized schools per se. And so that's kind of, I think maybe how we're different. We're, you know, a lot of our parents walk their kids over to the, you know, the house five doors down and that's you know where they nice. go with a class of six to eight kids where they they get this individualized attention hands-on learning you know we have maker week so they get to make whatever they're interested in sometimes it's bread they're growing seeds they're doing all kinds Ooh. of hands-on activities so i think it's kind of more like community schools than charter mm. schools i would say okay that's fascinating uh, you mentioned kids are some of those creative individuals in the world. I, and I agree with that. So the creativity we have as, as kids, why do you think we lose that? Or why do many of us lose that? Yeah. You know, I think it goes back to, you know, and, and I do think society's changing by the way, but I think it goes back to, you know, these, you know, the, 
current schooling system was developed, you know, for the industrial revolution. And so it was Mm. for the jobs that people would be having in factories. And in factories, you know, what do you do? You follow directions, you you learn methods, you follow directions. And there that was really, you know, it hasn't changed. So a hundred plus years, the schooling system, you know, arguably for most of America has not changed. And this is, you know, I'm talking more about the the whole school system. So I think that's kind of created an environment where when you think about future jobs and creativity or even entrepreneurship, that's more recent that we think about how important that is. And the future will be even more important than our generation. So I think, you know, part of it is that part of it, I think, is fitting into the norms of society. And now, thankfully, like, you know, so many more things are accepted and, and, and um, than they used to be. So I think, you know, those are those are some of the things that I think, you know, probably contribute to it. Yeah. So we're in somewhere we're breaking a, a cultured pattern based on historical, you know, needs of the economy of a growing economy. Yeah. I mean, I think instead of what I even try to do as a parent, instead of thinking that my child's not doing the right thing, I think like he's doing something artistic right now or something, you know, I try to think of it differently because I don't want him to think there's only one way to do it right. Or, I mean, for many different things that, that that creativity is actually going to be so important to him when he gets older. Yeah, you, you remind me of how much I love school, I, and I, I've always enjoyed being in school. And it actually reminds me of that book, Mindset, by Carol Dweck, and she she bifurcates how we our, our mindsets about things with the whole fixed versus growth mindset. Did you end up reading that book or hearing much about that? I, you know, I have that book, and I think I've only started it, but I need to pick it back up now that you say this because I've heard such good things about it. Yeah, yeah. The the thing that it specifically reminds me of is she calls out that she calls out this thing about the school system and that even tests being there's a right and wrong answer there's a right and wrong way to do things that when you get it wrong you kind of beat yourself up for it right and that even just how you react to failing or getting something incorrect really affects how you feel moving forward after that right and in the the growth mindset it's it's you failed and you're going to learn from it it's it, it kind of puts that positive spin. I, it's it's really a kind of a, a mindset frame to it. And I think it's like, we need to build that muscle of like, we actually need to fail a lot to get better at everything. And then in some way we can become figuratively unstoppable, right? Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think failure, there's been so many talks and so much focus on failure, but it still isn't celebrated like it probably should be, you know? Yeah, I agree. Or, or embraced, maybe not celebrated. Embraced. Embraced. <laughs> like knowing that it's normal, normalized maybe is a better word. Yeah. Yeah, right. So well, I think it's interesting. I think even when you talk about entrepreneurship, you realize as an entrepreneur, as a founder, um, and I would argue most of life and even sometimes a lot of times at work, there are very rarely these really black and white, right and wrong scenarios, right? Like things may not have worked out the way you want. The test may not have have passed in the way that you want. You maybe didn't make money and that's in the way that you thought you were going to or that product didn't get cut, take up, take, take off the way that you thought, but there are other things you can learn. There are iterations that you do. You don't stop typically, right. As a founder. And I think it's an interesting that like in school, there is this pass or fail a lot of times implying that that is life. And it's very rarely pass or fail, right. It's it's usually somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. And then also think about all the times in school that we that we just had to memorize something and then we mm. forgot it the next week. Right. You know? And Jacob, it sounds like you liked school. So I'd love to hear more about <laughs> if you liked that part of it. Because <laughs> Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. This feels like a therapy session a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you I, like school? I think I, think I like school because <laughs> I noticed everyone playing into a bit of like a role theory. There's always the person that's like a little bit, con- you know, contrary and very, and they're causing trouble. And then there's the person who's like, I like being perfect and I like getting things done and I like the teacher liking me. I was that kid, you know? So like I liked <laughs> getting the best score that I possibly could and I liked being perceived as like bright, you know? And I think I was good at that or I was good at building the skill of doing that after doing that for so many years that I just think it maybe fed my ego a little bit. And I was like, hey, you know what, Jacob, you're good at school. Yeah, you'd be great when you go back to school. But that doesn't mean that that's, I'm sure it's served me in some in some ways of like being an overachiever, but it also serves me in some darker ways too, right? Like I don't need to be perfect at everything. Like Ty knows that like I'm a voracious note taker and that's kind of partially out of being a perfectionist, but also wanting to hold everyone accountable to like, hey, let's get this thing done. Like let's do it really well. So I think I I like it because it's just placed my strengths in some way, but also I think it plays to my ego a bit too. That's really insightful. Right. And 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 thorough. <laughs> yeah. Very thorough. I just learned something about thorough. myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, are you taking notes right now? Yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> he's great. He's he's the best note taker I've ever met <laughs> by far. Helps me think. But it's Helps interesting. You yeah. you you led into something that I want to talk a little bit about with Shauna, which was this idea of the different people in a class. Right. And in, in, in others of your talks and other of your posts and, and writings, you've talked about this one room schoolhouse. And I'd love for you like to, to develop that concept. What was the one room schoolhouse and why are you intrigued by that concept? Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, it really kind of goes back to this micro school model, which we, you know, we, we really came about looking at all of the elements that exist. So, so first of all, we're in a crisis for early mm. child education. It's a national crisis. And so when, then when you look at that, what are all the elements, the levers that we can pull to make this a more interesting industry generally and actually actually change the industry? And so that's when we kind of looked back to not only for, for the children, but also for the parents and for the educators. These smaller schools actually, you know, a lot of the research shows this is, this is, this is actually what's best. And mm. why not open up inventory in our own neighborhoods that we can use for this? And so that's really kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of times when you think about the one room schoolhouse, it's kind of back years and years and years thinking Mm -hmm, about like mm -hmm. these neighborhood schools that actually were built as single standalone schoolhouses where they were oftentimes mixed age. So all the kids would go into one schoolhouse in a neighborhood and learn. And um, that's another part of something that we actually like, which is a Montessori principle of mixed age and mentorship between different levels. I mean, if you think about if you think about school, it's the only time in your life where you're only with the exact same age group, you know, that you're that you are. And that's completely unnatural and I think right now there's a big shift, you know, away from that and away towards some mentorship models and creating school that mimics or feels a little bit more like real life versus sort of this environment that you're not going to have again after school. So so in these micro schools, these micro classes that you, you guys are creating or, or, or facilitating, helping to facilitate, 
what what's the ability of the of the teacher or the what can they do with their classroom? Yeah, so uh, oftentimes they're two and a half to six years old, okay. and there'll be between six and ten students in the class, depending on a lot of different factors. You know sure. how big the educator wants, you know, is comfortable with the class, the space. And, you know, sometimes other, other things like licensing, but yeah. They're mixed ages. Yeah. I do think that's really cool. Uh, You know, I think to your observation, it's the only time in life where we're so kind of structured and and there's been a bit of a talk around structured play, right? This, this whole concept that happened in the last 10 to 20 years, even just in parenting, right. Of, of people like structuring their, the playtime, everything's scheduled, very little free form for the kids that just go out in the neighborhood, find the neighborhood kids and go for it, you know, like just have their own thing, figuring it all out. There's no parent to help with the argument, the the disagreement, the the challenge that may pop up. The kids just do it, right? Um, and, and it's kind of an interesting uh, correlation here where it's like get away from some of these structures to allow some of these other ways of learning and thinking, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, like it kind of just goes back to supporting, you know, each child's interest, just like you would, you know, anyone else that you know, and then, you know, not creating artificial environments or treating kids mm. like, like their kids or their, you know, they need to be in a certain box, just kind of like you were saying, Ty, yeah. yeah, there's definitely a huge shift um, more towards um, self, you know, self-directed, whole child learning that feels more like real life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then you said something else that you've also talked a little bit about in a different way, which was the crisis of, of child care. And I've heard you in some of your other talks talk about the child care deserts. You know, what is this crisis? Talk to us about this crisis, these childhood child care deserts. What's going on? Yeah. So there's, you know, and this was kind of interesting, you know, being, you know, inside of a VC firm at Madrona Venture Labs before starting weekdays, because you get a chance to see a lot of different industries. And so looking into this one and realizing that this phenomenon exists called the childcare desert, where there's three times as many kids as there are spots available in more than half of the U.S. So if you think about that, that's why millions of women, you know, were leaving the workforce before the pandemic right. and are now. And not, it's not just women. I mean, it's, it's parents. It happens to be more women. But there, there is a absolute massive shortage. And part there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. One of the reasons is because this has not been an attractive profession for educators to stay in. And, it, and they just haven't had the support. They're undervalued and underpaid. And so you see this high churn. And it's 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 a highly it's a highly fragmented market, but a huge market. And so there's kind of from you know from a VC perspective, as I was looking at it, I think that this is one of the most broken industries I had seen at my time at Moderna Venture Labs. I mean, I I hadn't seen and I experienced it personally too, but I hadn't seen anything that seemed to be like this acute of a problem where you know it truly is a crisis. So let's talk a little bit about what 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 are you doing? So you, you you've mentioned your startup, we've mentioned what you're working on, but we haven't said what it's called. Um, I believe it's weekdays um, that you that you're starting, and and what are you doing with weekdays? How are you um, going after this big fragmented uh, industry? Yeah, so we we have amazing neighborhood micro classes for children who are one to six years old. And so really, what we're doing is we're using existing inventory within educators' homes. We are creating 
everything that they need to, um, to lead a micro class. And our goal, you know, really the opportunity that we saw is that right now Bright Horizons has, you know, mainly been the leader in early childhood education. You know, before the pandemic, they're a $10 billion company, but there's nothing based in homes that has any level of quality that that can rival anything like a Bright Horizons level of quality. And, and that's just the quality bar for the industry. So being so fragmented, it kind of created this opportunity where what if we can use this existing inventory in neighborhoods, these talented teachers, there's a huge shift to work from home. Why can't educators also work from home mm. and get paid well, you know, get paid better than they, than they were paid before. And so then when we saw that was opportunity, it was really just getting, you know, kind of getting into the business model and how is this going to work? And mm. What are the needs of the customer? And, you know, could we find something that really had the potential to change the industry? And there was a lot of talk about it during this, during the pandemic. So you start this company, you're, you're intrigued by this huge fragmented industry. The pandemic hits. It feels catastrophic for so many of us and was. It was tough on a lot of us. But there was also this kind of pullback and all of a sudden, naturally, people started to talk about this, think about this, want to know about this. How the pandemic, how did this play out for you? How have you spent the last, you know, 18 or so months uh, working on this during this time? I, it's hard to even put it into words. You know, I mean, it's just been so right before the pandemic hit, I had um, started this inside Moderna Venture Labs and incubated it inside Moderna Venture Labs with a co-founder and he left. I was pregnant. I had my son fun out weekdays, weeks after having my son, um, really as a solo founder, you know, which, which that wasn't my plan. And then, you know, weeks later, the pandemic hits. And so I am like in third and fourth meetings with investors raising, raising a seed round, the pandemic hits and it was just like, everything stops. So I'm not, all of a sudden, like, w- it was like one week I'm having the meetings, the next week, like, you know, all the VCs at that point were like really assessing their losses, looking at their own current portfolios. It was it was wow. the worst time to raise. Now it's obviously great. But back then it was like, yeah. there was this, like, nobody was calling anybody back, you know. And so I just decided, okay, what, like, what is the, we've never seen anything like this before. I happened to start a company that, you know, is right in the middle of this one of the art, you know, 55 million kids, 120, 24,000 schools shut down almost overnight. And that's just not really challenging. That's like the, the whole, the whole education industry for yeah. um, K through 12. And so right. all of a sudden these major, you know, bright horizons, like all of the major players in this space had no, en- almost no enrollments, like really struggling, shutting down oh. centers were shutting down. And so you look at the landscape and all of a sudden you see, there is a wide open landscape for for you as a startup to for a minute be on the right. same plane as as others, you know. And so, I remember calling Mike at Moderna Venture Labs, and I'm just like brainstorming with him, like, how can we really make a difference right now? We're an early stage company. What can we do? Mm. So we set up, you know, <laughs> we were looking at the resources that we do have and what we could do. We set up a line, or if anyone. Um, wanted to form a, a neighborhood pod or micro class at this time it was it was just groups of two or three so mm. we weren't even we weren't even because we, we just wanted to bring it way back down we didn't know much right. about covid or how it you know but we knew that kids still needed some socialization and you could create these little groups family groups where you were all being careful and that was kind of your friend group during that time and so i put a tweet out and i said 
if you're looking to create a pod, so we did a few things on the back end with like a basic system. And I said, if you're looking to create a pod, text us at, or, or call us at this number. And I think it was tech, we led with text and all of a sudden hundreds of retreats. It was just one of those things where it was just, it was just going. And I think it ended up with several thousand. And before I had um, gotten a few media requests or, or people had connected me to media outlets. Well, now Wall Street Journal is calling me all of a sudden, what an early stage startup that's innovating, right. you know, with pods, yes. what's happening with micro schools. And so then all of a sudden, next thing I know, that led to additional media opportunities. Bloomberg, mm. Fox TV started like knocked on my door, you know, three weeks into the pandemic, you know, when we weren't visiting homes right. at that time. <laughs> it was surreal. I mean, I can't even, I kind of found myself in the middle of this national conversation. I was getting up at 6 a.m. to do like media interviews. And I had we I had set up the text line where I got a notification anytime somebody signed up on our website. So we're hundreds of people are signing up on the website and I'm getting like my phone is just going off the hook. Oh, and yeah. so yeah. it was sort of the best and the worst of what you, right. you know, I mean, <laughs> the best worst problem, if that's possible, where our top of the funnel was so big, our team was so small, and we were trying to basically match people as fast as we could. And so we were able to match a lot of people. We kind of created a matching tool. We weren't involved in those earliest matches, um, mm. just because we didn't have the, we didn't have everything built out to be able to support, you know, the payment system and the, mm -hmm. you know, the the mm -hmm. websites, and we didn't have everything automated yet. So we were just trying to, you know, really help as many people as possible. And and then businesses wow. reached out, and then school districts reached out, elected officials wow. reached out, and it was kind of like this perfect storm of. How, what do you say no to and what do you investigate mm. or focus on? And yeah. so that lasted probably six months of rapid every week. We were doing new tests as fast as we could mm. very lightweight tests to figure out which areas is there fast moving water right now? Because if there's ever going to be fast, you know, if we're ever going to learn anything, it's going to be now. So let's learn mm -hmm. as much as we can. And so that was, it was, uh, it's hard to put into words. It was, it was surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. It's interesting because, you know, obviously we're, we're focused here on marketplaces and talking about this. And a lot of the things that we, one of the fun questions we like to talk about is the supply versus demand, the chicken or the egg problem. And what was your flywheel? What, what got this thing going? How did you go? You know, did you have to subsidize the side, et cetera? So here you go. You've got this like natural <laughs> demand gen engine. Was it on both sides? Did you, were you getting educators as well as 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 parents and, and that have kids was it one side heavy how did you deal with that and then talk us through this matching concept eventually you said you had to do some of that in the middle that was the marketplace i'm assuming the marketplace tech i'm assuming yeah you know i mean it, it was a sort of I, I guess sort of it felt like a once in a generation opportunity where we were getting so much incoming especially as an early stage outsized media attention for you know a company our stage i think just because we were trying to think differently and sure. got one interview you know so it was a lot of trying to figure out what can we do here that is building a company that's going to last um, mm -hmm. beyond? And we had educators, we focused our message on parents because we thought that was what was going to resonate and bring. And then with that, then it would bring in educators and it did. And so we, nice. in the beginning days, did not have any messages really focused on educators. I did end up, and I've done this at several startups before, I did end up creating 
a uh, two different Facebook groups and those quickly got, I think there's like 20,000 families and educators in those. And so then organically, I was able to get email addresses from those. And since I owned the group, I could post and kind of set the rules for the group that, you know, others could post. And so that also created a lot of organic. And so what I was really trying to do at that point in time was not only learn a lot, but also build our list. So as soon as we did have things built out, we could look Mm. at, for instance, what neighborhoods do we want to launch in next? Maybe we had, you know, I was thinking we're getting access to these educators. Normally we probably wouldn't have access to, but now we have their contact info. So if we can build (laughs) over the next several months, an amazing company and reach back out and say, look, we've got this, like, come join us. So in the beginning, we did not have that problem, but I did, I do know that, you know, and I knew even when I started this, as we were doing the very earliest vetting that, that the parent side was going to be easier than the educator side. And, you know, that, that is the case for sure. I think there's been times where it's been easier and harder, but we've, you know, we've been riding a lot of tailwinds from the pandemic. Now you have all of these emails, you have all of these requests. How did you start thinking about the matching of them? Like you said you were matching that. I'm curious about that. Did you let these kind of naturally start to figure out, I'm I'm assuming location was important, things like that. Was that it? Or did you guys literally create, you know, some products, some some algorithm in the middle that, that did this for them? How did you guys start to handle that? Yeah. So we had a very, very simple matching tool that just looked at location and age. In the very beginning, because we felt like we can do that right now. So why not at least make those matches and try to provide some value while we actually build out the rest of the tech, the MVP of the tech platform. And then, you know, we launched, what was it? We launched websites. You could put a website up and, and, you know, and basically say that you've got these openings you can host, or maybe you're, you can't host, but you're looking for a family to host in your neighborhood and then an alert system. So we could know when others came in that that, like we didn't have enough in an area, but then all of a sudden we did have enough. We created what is on the website now that's still on the website, which is a founding family where if you, we launched the search capability for neighborhoods nationally, just because we, we had all of this interest from across the U S so normally national press, right? Like you had this press that was there. (laughs) You got to take advantage of it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't our plan. You know, we were going to, you know, and and we've, we have reined it back in since then with our main focus being Washington and, and, you know, and, and we'll be the West coast, but that, in that time we were like, how can we get things going in different areas and maybe be more hands-off, but at least provide value given it's the pandemic. Um, while still, you know, building essentially our contact list um, on top of the funnel. So then we launched a payment platform. We launched a text messaging platform. So all of our communication with parents and with educators, not all, about 90% is via text message, um, which has worked phenomenally well. We even do our NPS surveys via text message. And our open and read rate and uh, opt-out rate is like phenomenally better than it would be for email. So that's been one of the one of the best things that we did. We 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 just started with text message. We didn't even like start with email. We just <laughs> built we built this basic text message system similar to like what Airbnb had in the early days. And and so that that worked great. And then we launched the websites. We have an MVP of a of a basic curriculum where all of our schools are all of our network schools focus on the same theme, but they can take it in the direction they want to take it. And we have some suggested ideas and that's uh, our curriculum is, is based uh, via, via text message. It comes over text oh, message wow. to the educators. Cool. So it's very lightweight, easy to use. Most of them don't have computers. They're on their phones. So those were the yeah, elements yeah. that we added in. And basically what we looked at is how can we create 
as much support as possible and as much community as possible so that the educator turn doesn't look anything like the rest of the industry. Like how can we delight educators and delight parents? And that was kind of what we set out to do in the beginning. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming. 